Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within, and like the phoenix, enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Dr. Susan Lavelle, a former plastic surgeon and now a functional medicine doctor with a practice in North Carolina. She recounts how an illness that landed her in the hospital multiple times became the catalyst for her to gain control over her own health, but more importantly, leading her to find a new purpose as a doctor. Please welcome Dr. Susan Lavelle. Welcome, Dr. Susan. So I ask one question to get the conversation started. And the question is, has there been an event in your life, personally or professionally, that was incredibly challenging that might have perhaps redirected your life? Oh, absolutely. What I tell people is that I was in plastic surgery for about 22 years, really loved it. The only problem was, is that uh, most of the places I was, I was working on my own. So I would be the only plastic surgeon for miles and miles and miles. So that meant I was always on call. And eventually what happened was that I pushed myself to where I ended up in the intensive care unit three times in the space of one year. And that was the, the the kicker. That was when I said, okay, time's to stop. You know, it's time to stop believing that I can do everything and be everything to everyone. Um, it's time to start taking care of myself. And when I first went back to traditional medicine, what they wanted to do was put me on steroids and medications. And instead, not only did that not help, but it also made things worse. I want to go back to A. Where were you practicing that you were the only, yes, that you were the only plastic surgeon for miles and miles? So that was actually in two different situations. So the first one was Northeast North Carolina. I was the only plastic surgeon within 50 miles in any direction. But then when I moved to Wichita, Kansas, I was in a smaller town which was called Newton. And again, there was nobody within 30 minutes. That was the closest, was about 30 minutes and 45 was was even more so. So two times. So, you know, from a societal standpoint, we all have this perception of what plastic surgery is really about, (laughs) right? I I live in New York City. I see plenty examples of it (laughs) around me. It is about, you know, altering one's appearance, right, for aesthetic reasons, although I understand for some people it has to do with their self-esteem and so forth. Mm-hmm. So when you say that you were on call and you were the only one for miles, and I'm assuming on call with a hospital, what other types of plastic surgery would require a plastic surgeon to be on call? Excellent question. So yes, within the hospital, first of all, there would be my own patients. So for instance, if I did um, some of the surgeries that I did, 
say for breast reconstruction would take six, nine hours. So that would be one thing. But the other would be dog bites. You know, if if little children fell off and injured their hand, their faces, I did a lot of hand surgery. So, and it it seemed like it was always one o'clock in the morning (laughs) that these little kids would come in. And then when you say uh, reconstructive surgery for breasts, are you talking about cancer patients? Yes, for the most part. So, you know, women who would have either a lumpectomy or more specifically a full mastectomy and some of the reconstructions that I did, some of them were just, you know, putting an an expander in uh, and then an implant, but some of them were what we call free flaps where you would take So can you tell us and be a little bit more specific the first time that you ended up in the intensive care unit? Can you tell us what was the diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. The very first time was, uh, well, I'll tell you about a week before that I ended up there. And I was just walking around, had been working pretty hard and just kind of noticed I had this kind of cramp in my left calf. Didn't know what was going on, but it sort of went away. I moved it out and kind of worked it out and it it got better and went away. And then about a week later, I was working at the hospital and all of a sudden it was like somebody just took a huge hammer and just pressed it down in my my lower body, like from my waist down. It was the most excruciating pain I'd ever felt. And shortly right after that, I started getting really short of breath. So between those two things, I knew something was absolutely going on. And it turned out that I had developed a deep vein thrombosis, which then kicked off and kicked into my lungs. And so I had a pulmonary embolism. So went to the intensive care unit. So how long were you in the intensive care unit that first time? The first time was about a week. So, well, at the entire time in the hospital was about a week. So the intensive care unit was maybe two days, two and a half days, because what they wanted to do was clear the clot from my legs and make sure that there wasn't anything else going. So when you came out of the hospital, did you immediately make changes or did you just go back and resume what you had been doing before? Yeah, that first time, no. That wasn't about that first time. This is a blood clot, but it wasn't that first time. Uh, They actually put me on a blood thinner and I was what they call therapeutic on that blood thinner. So it should have worked. But about a month later, same symptoms, same Mm. thing going on. And now I knew essentially what was going on. So I went back to the hospital, was back in the intensive care unit. And they realized that I had developed a clot even on a blood bitter. So I had a filter put in my body so that the the clots couldn't get back up to my lungs. After that second time, I'm assuming you probably took a moment and took stock of looking at your life in its totality, right? Yes. Um, So what was the first change that you made? The very first thing, the only thing that I could do in the beginning was changing what I ate. And that was because after that second time, I was exhausted. It was like you had just taken me through the ringer. I would want to go and walk my dogs. And by the time I got outside the door and walked to the next neighbor, which was maybe 15 feet, it was time for me to stop. So I was, there's not much I could do other than change and be more specific and deliberate about the foods that I was eating. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the things that you eliminated? Because I'm assuming you went through like an elimination diet and then deciding what actually worked in your body. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because at this point, I was in Northeast North Carolina and I was what had been born and raised in New York City, was born into a family. My mom, we used to call her Dr. Jean, even though she had never gone to medical school, but she was very health conscious even before it was a big thing. So all of my life, I knew the right things to eat. And I had been very active because I was a professional ballet dancer for 14 years before I went to medical school. But then when I moved to Northeast North Carolina, all that I could see was, you know, fried chicken and really good biscuits and gravy and sweet tea. And I just had a boss. <laughs> <laughs> I just enjoyed myself and uh, ended up gaining about 35 pounds. And I'm short, so I'm 5'2". So 35 pounds was a lot of weight on me, which led to a lot of the inflammation and things. So when I came out that second time, I realized that, you know, that was probably one of the top things that was causing inflammation in my body. And I'll I'll take a quick step back and just, just say that when the doctors tried to see why I was developing these blood clots, they couldn't find a reason. Right. And they still have not found a reason for it, specific reason for it. So the the changes that I started making, number one was get off of all of the the Get up all, you mean you had to give up fried foods. Um, and that worked some. And it gave me a little bit more energy uh, and stopped being quite so inflamed. And so then I said, okay, the next thing I want to do is start adding uh, movement. And so I started looking for other ways to get that movement back into my life in a way that was more attractive to me. And that's mm-hmm. when I came to yoga, um, Qigong, things that were more, that seemed more dance related, but were still giving you that fitness in addition to helping you with mindset. Okay. I just love the fact that you glossed over <laughs> like a footnote. I was a professional ballerina for 14 years before I became a doctor. That has to be a separate podcast, really. Um, so then you changed your diet. Can you tell the audience, I know that you also made some big life shifts, right? And that probably, you know, starting with your profession. So can you tell us a little bit about that process of leaving plastic surgery and moving into this sphere that you're occupying now? I can. That is about 10 years later, just so that you're clear. Oh, okay. So during the 10 years that you were trying to figure out how to keep yourself healthy besides diet and yoga, what other practices or modalities did you bring into your life? The reason I, it took me quite that long was because I guess, you know, maybe I wasn't as, as smart as I thought I was, but uh, even with stepping away from all of the junk and I got better, you know, so each step I was getting better and better, but I still wasn't where I needed to be. And it was another period of high stresses when I had that third bout. So oh, after wow. having, yeah, after the, the second one, I was on a blood thinner that, that an actual injectable blood thinner for a year. And that is the traditional, you know, the way of treatment came off of that after that, that full year. And within a month of being off it, I had a third one. Now, by this time I had the filter, so it couldn't go to my lungs, but it completely filled my left lower leg. 
And oh. so this is why I was back in the intention because they had to dissolve that. If that client had gone anywhere else, you know, I wouldn't be standing here. And so I was septic where the body just has this raging infection all throughout. And luckily, my husband had come to visit me that evening. He came later than he usually did. If he had not, I, again, probably wouldn't be here because it wasn't recognized that I was septic. They came in, gave me antibiotics, et cetera. Walked out that third time. And shortly after that, I developed a raging rash all throughout my body. Again, they wanted to put me on steroids because they didn't really have an answer. Long story short, that's when I started going and looking specifically at food sensitivities and gut health. And it turned out that I was had what we call now leaky gut and um, had developed an allergy, well, not an allergy, but a really sensitive uh, sensitivity to eggs, which oh, wow. I loved and you know, would eat them several times, sometimes several times a day. And it wasn't until I gave up eggs that the rash went away two weeks, you know, versus all of the high dose steroids and everything that really didn't work. And that's when I really started getting more focused on, wow, there really is something to functional medicine and finding the root cause of what's going on. So it took me, it took me a while to realize, you know, you really need to do something. Um, Well, yeah, that brings me to a really interesting point. So I always say to my clients as a yoga therapist, I'm treating the whole person Mm -hmm. and I'll treat the symptoms when they present themselves, you know, so obviously if somebody shows up for a session in pain, I want to address the pain, right? But that in the back of my head, I'm always trying to get to the root cause of whatever it is that has caused this pain. So I find it really fascinating that even as a physician, that Did you ever feel moments where you could argue with the doctors and question, you know, the diagnosis or their prescriptions of things that they wanted you to do? Not really. And it wasn't even so much that I couldn't. It's just that I knew that they had no other options. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were doing the absolute best that they knew how to do for me. It's just that they weren't giving me the answers that I needed. And I went out and did my own research and found my own answers. So how long did it take you to make that shift from plastic surgery to now your functional medical practice? I would say probably about four years. And the reason it took that long was, well, number one, I wanted to go back and get real training. I didn't want to just have, you know, Google something and find the answer. I wanted to have that training. So I went back into a course specific Because way back when I first decided I wanted to go into medicine, it was because I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. And I just realized that, you know, I can make a better difference long term by doing functional medicine, by doing lifestyle and holistic medicine. So can you tell the audience about your practice and where you're based? So right now I am in Raleigh, North Carolina, but I work with women and men now virtually across the nation Um, and as far as Canada and as far away as Australia. So I can work with anyone where there's a connection that we can make in some way, shape or form. And the way I work is we start by looking at where they're starting from. So that's a detailed history It's also looking at whatever lab work they have available. And then when I see that, sometimes I will order specialty testing. 
like hormones or food sensitivities or gut health. And then we look at that and decide what they want to do going forward, because not everybody wants to run a marathon. Not everyone wants to say lose 20 pounds, or it really depends on what each person wants. So each program is customized in a certain respect. Yeah. I I think when we first spoke, there was a lot of comparison, like comparative notes of what you do and what I do and Mm -hmm. the overlap in terms of approach. So I'm going to ask a question. I only ask this because I have had a very close purview into the African-American community because of my husband. Hmm. And, you know, when you talked about the fact that when you first moved to North Carolina and you described the diet, that's pretty standard, right? And we know that you know, there's a huge rate of type two diabetes in the African-American community. And I've had this question for a long time myself. How have you started to think more broadly about affecting change within your community? Yes. And that's one of the, one of the big issues. There are many, many reasons that there is that disparity. And I've actually started to study that the reason behind that, especially since it's been brought up even more so after COVID. But some of it is access to healthcare. You know, just don't, you don't have the access to the upper levels of of healthcare. That would be one. Two would be that there is some level of distrust. You need to be totally honest in the African-American and even just the people of color in general have a, a some level of distrust with the medical community. And so that is an issue that's ongoing um, that needs to be addressed. And then there's also the almost a, a sense of resignation that, you know, if mom and dad were obese and had diabetes, then I'm going to be that way too. It's like you're not understanding that Just because everyone, even if everyone in your family has these issues, it doesn't mean that you have to as well. So -hmm. that's another. And then the last is there really is more of a what I've seen sometimes is that there's a belief that unless you have curbs, you know, (laughs) unless you've got a little bit of extra weight on you, that you're not healthy. And that's absolutely not the not the case. So do you think that I mean, I associate so. okay. I'm Korean American. Koreans are obsessed with food. If you turn on Netflix, you can see entire shows based around (laughs) Koreans eating food. And, you know, my husband's always amazed that in my family, as we're sitting at lunch, we'll be planning dinner. Right. (laughs) So and I think culturally, I get it from my parents' standpoint this incredible commodity, not just of need, but of status. So do you think the same thing applies to what food means to the African-American community? Because if you look at slavery, like those family meals were very important. So absolutely. I mean, definitely food is a very important portion or part of the culture of African-Americans. You know, obviously my mother-in-law, when we go down to visit, it's just food heaven, right? <laughs> um, and and I, I absolutely love it because we don't ever eat like that normally, but it's not resistance, but I've always tried to kind of encourage discussion around different ways to cook or different Mm -hmm. ways to incorporate certain things into the diet. Mm -hmm. And part of it is 
I know in certain communities, it's a lack of access, right? Lack of access to farmers markets or whole foods or, or whatever. But I also think there's like a reluctance almost of making these changes. So have you encountered that in your work? Oh, absolutely. I've even encountered that in my family, <laughs> but they know at this point um, that, you know, that mom's not eating gluten-free and, or is eating gluten-free. And for the most part, we've gotten to the point where most of our holiday dinners and meals and even, you know, Sunday meals, because we often have Sunday dinner are made with say gluten-free things and, and dairy-free and making those changes with healthier fats, healthier, you know, if we're going to have grains, they're going to be whole grains and healthier grains, more vegetables. So we're making those changes and making them tasty enough that now they not only don't mind it, they actually love them. You know, some wow. of them love our changed macaroni and cheese even more so than the original. So it really is a matter of finding a way to make the things that you're used to and make them in a way that are just as good, if not better than what you're used to. In your practice, are you kind of targeting the African-American community, knowing that there is such a need for your type of practice? I have to say that I have not specifically targeted. However, that seems to be the people who see me. And I think that that's because my face is out there. I'm very open about who I am. And the majority of the people that I work with are African-American. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. I, I actually think that's amazing because I feel like there's such a need in the community for more physicians like you working within the community. So can you tell us in terms of that transition, how do you incorporate the Western training that you spent years and years and years, right? Learning under as well as the functional. I mean, is it a, a kind of a blend or marriage of the two, or have you really just shifted your focus entirely to integrative medicine? I would say it's maybe 90, 10%. <laughs> and the reason for that is Every once in a while, there is going to be something where, uh, say, for instance, if someone's test comes back and we see, I'm just going to say blood in the stool or something, I'm not going to say, okay, let's treat this with a medication. I'm going to say, you need to get that worked out, but evaluated first. And if it's negative for malignancy or anything really worrisome, then we will manage you in a more holistic manner. So just, you know, it's really a matter of understanding where the line is and where you definitely need to have something worked up first before you go down the other road. And how has your own experience of being in intensive care three times, how has that shaped your approach to working with your patients? I'm a lot more understanding of why sometimes, because now that I've gone through it, I want everybody to jump on board right away and let's get going and let's get you feeling better. And not everyone is ready for that. Not everyone is ready to make those changes. And when I sort of get a little frustrated or like, why aren't you ready? I have to remember how long it took me to right. make those changes, to understand that I needed to make those changes and how serious it was before I was ready to make those changes. So that's, I think, the biggest thing. It does give me that empathy for the people that I'm working with. 
And it's interesting that you, you're saying that you gained that empathy after experiencing your own crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Because I do think there is a perception partly drawn from a lot of actual life experience that some doctors have a hard time with that part of working with the patient, right? Showing empathy if they can for whatever it is the patient is experiencing. So now moving forward, where are you in the practice? How long have you been doing this particular practice? Mm -hmm. So full-time, I've been working uh, since 2019, the very beginning of 2019. I left um, Wichita, Kansas on the 4th of January and started here in Raleigh, North Carolina on the 5th. So I got, got right to work. And that first year was really just feeling it all out. Because if you can imagine when you're in plastics, you hang up your shingle and people come or they don't come. They understand you're a plastic surgeon. This is what you do. A lot of people don't know. First of all, they don't even know what it is. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we can call it lifestyle medicine or whatever, but they also don't know what's possible for them. So it was really a, a matter of educating people that first year. Then 2020, where everyone, <laughs> you would think that it actually would be, you know, blown up at, in a bad way, actually was almost a good thing because people were so much more focused on their own health. Mm, and yeah, and by switching completely to virtual, which is what I did again because of 2020, more people realized that they could get the support that they wanted without having to travel or without all of the the hoopla of having a doctor's visit and everything. So it actually worked out very well. This year, because of the experience of last year, what I have decided was to be not so much the one-to-one doctor, but more a one-to-many. So more uh, masterclasses, more workshops, seminars, corporate wellness, um, and even a retreat. So things like that, where we can actually meet more and actually impact more people. Oh, yes. And my book, just finished my book too. (laughs) Oh, you wrote a book. Can you tell us (laughs) the title? It is called Thrive, Five Weeks to Mastering Your Energy at Any Age. Oh, that's brilliant. When is it coming out? I do hope by the middle of September. So we're, we're really close. Oh, that's great. Um, And people will be able to find it online or at, you know, I guess online is the only way now (laughs) small mom and pop bookstores. Yes, it'll be on all of the big outlets. Oh, that's amazing. And what, so can you tell us those five steps? I mean, I I, I don't want you to give the book away entirely, but (laughs) if you could share maybe like three of the steps that you would um, provide to someone who is looking to boost their energy and get a hold of their entire well-being? Oh, absolutely. So we do, uh, each week we look at one of the four quadrants of premier wellness. So the very first week is eating elite. The second week is moving more in a way that is actually fitting for you. The third week is live wisely. So that's stress reduction, getting your sleep in order, getting hormones balanced. The fourth week is love divinely. So loving yourself and being able to stick to something, loving others and realizing your divine connection. And then the fifth week is putting it all together with listen, let go and live. Oh, wow. That's great. That is amazing. So can you tell us about this retreat that you're 
planning to hold and sort of the impetus for it and what your objective is with it? It is going to be for women because women, especially after this past year, year and a half, have gotten so much into doing so much for everyone else and neglecting their own health and self-care that I wanted them to be able to have a time where they can take that time away and focus on themselves. And uh, yeah, that's great. And so are you going to be using the tenants of your book to sort of guide the workshop retreat? Exactly. Exactly. That's amazing. Uh, mm -hmm. So if you could, you know, we've just covered a ton of material or um, (laughs) subject matters. So I am always thinking about women who are facing, you know, they're at the fork in the road things have changed. And certainly after this year, I think many of us have faced that fork in the road and taking a step back and having to reassess and perhaps make changes. What advice would you offer someone? For making that change? Present what uh, you can paint whatever scenario you want as an Mm -hmm. example, but Mm -hmm. I'm really curious to see like what advice, what one thing would you say to someone who's like, needing to make a change? The thing that I would say is what I am now using for almost anything in life, which is that listen, let go and live. So that first thing is listen, listen to whatever your body's telling you. Because when you do, when you step back, if you maybe meditate a little bit, if you feel about how, what you're thinking about doing and what the reaction is in your own body, you're going to get messages and know a little bit better what you really need to do. The second one is to let go. So if you're thinking about making a change, that that's one of the things that happens a lot with the women that I work with is they're holding on to, say, a job that they really don't like because they feel secure, you know, or they, they think it makes them secure. And my recommendation is, is that at sometimes if you realize that this is not right for you at this particular point, that you might need to let go a little so that you can then reach out for something that's better. And then the third is to live your own version of thriving. And by that, I mean, whatever it is that that floats your boat, that makes and brings that joy into your life is what you need to be doing, especially at this, at this stage in life. It's interesting. So when you were writing the book, did you have a specific age group in mind? I did. I did. Really that 45 to 55. And that's because... A lot of things are changing around then, you know, our our hormones are changing. A lot of times you're at a point in your career where either you're going to skyrocket to the next level or you know that you're just going to kind of peter along at that same little level. And so a lot of changes happen at this particular stage in life. You stop being able to, say, move as fast as you wanted to. You're not sleeping as well as you wanted to. You may be gaining weight when you didn't want to. So there are just so many things that kind of hit around that age. So that's why that was the number that I had. And that was the age that I had all of my issues. Wait, I always ask a last question that is sort of out of randomness. If you could pick one song that either resonates with you or in some way describes your life, what is the name of that song? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't know if this would, would completely sum it up, but it's called I'm Not Finished. And it really is just a song that, that a woman is singing and just saying that she's got so much more to do in her life. 
and that she's going to listen and take the steps that are necessary to go forward. How can people find you? Yeah, that'd be wonderful. On our website, which is www.premierwellness.com. And Premier is actually spelled with an E. So P-R-E-M-I-E-R-E, wellness.com. Thank you, Dr. Susan, for taking the time and being a part of the Phoenix Tales community. I am incredibly grateful that you are able to do that. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience. When I got tired of waiting, then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack, focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix Tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.